Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 10. If you're new with us this morning, if it's been a while since you've been with us, first of all, welcome. Glad you're here. Second of all, you should know that we are in the middle of a series on the book of Acts, making our way verse by verse through the book of Acts this morning. That means we are in Acts chapter 10. Let's pray and ask that God would bless our time together now as we open the word. Father, we do ask that as we open your word, we would have hearts that are ready to accept what your word has to say. We pray that we would have ears to hear, that in the midst of the hardness of our own sin and the difficulties of this world and the distractions that this life offers, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. And so God, give us ears to hear. Let us be ready to accept what your word has to say. Let us be faithful to listen and then apply the word to our lives. And so God, we know that for any of this to happen, it will require your grace And so we're pausing now before we open your word just to ask that your grace would be plentiful upon us. Lord, please let your spirit reign today. Let us not walk in the flesh, but let us instead be led by your spirit as we open your word and as we hear together what your word has to say. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. Well, no doubt some of the greatest discoveries in history have come about as a result of ingenuity and creativity and hard work. Others, though, have come about almost by accident. The discovery of penicillin would probably fall into the latter categories. The story goes, in the late summer of 1928, Dr. Alexander Fleming left his research position in London for a two-week vacation in Scotland. When he returned, he found mold growing on some of the petri dishes that he left behind. It just so happens that those infected petri dishes were actually colonies of bacteria that Fleming had previously inoculated. And upon further examination of those infected dishes, Fleming noticed that the mold seemed to be preventing the spread of the bacteria. That was actually a huge discovery with massive implications down the road, but it was almost entirely an accident. Apparently, Fleming was known to be a bit of a slob, and he left behind the petri dishes not as a science experiment, but more so a testament to his lack of cleanliness. But regardless of how it may came about, the discovery of the mold was indeed a light bulb moment for Fleming. As he looked at those petri dishes, he realized something significant was happening. In the weeks to follow, Fleming would come to realize not only did the mold inhibit the growth of the bacteria, it could actually be harnessed to actively fight against it. And that reality would end up being a game changer in the medical world. As Fleming would later write of his discovery, and I quote, When I woke up just after dawn on September 28, 1928, I certainly did not plan to revolutionize all medicine by discovering the world's first antibiotic or bacteria killer, but I guess that's exactly what I did. Now that's kind of a humble brag, but he's right. That is what he did. By accidental happenstance, Fleming had discovered one of the world's first and most effective antibiotics, penicillin. And that discovery, along with the discovery of other antibiotics, would in fact change the medical world. For example, the current rate of death from infectious disease is now about 1 20th or 5% what it was in 1900, prior to the invention or discovery of penicillin. That's incredible. And that's all because of Fleming's light bulb moment. Now, as you might imagine, I don't tell you that story this morning because I'm particularly interested in us talking about the history of antibiotics. Rather, I tell you that story this morning because I think there are some parallels between Fleming's story and our passage today in Acts 10. In Acts 10, the Apostle Peter has his own light bulb moment. Now, to be sure, there are some definite differences between Fleming's moment and Peter's. Peter's light bulb moment has nothing to do with petri dishes or mold or groundbreaking medical discoveries. Instead, Peter's moment involves direct intervention by an angel, a strange vision, and a significant theological shift. But there are some similarities. Like Fleming's light bulb moment, Peter's light bulb moment wasn't necessarily one that he was seeking to find. Rather, like Fleming, it seemed to find him. 
And like Fleming's light bulb moment, Peter's light bulb moment was also a moment that would forever change the course of history. And so my hope this morning is that in studying this light bulb moment of Peter's, that the light bulb would come on for us too. More specifically, I'm praying that this passage would help us to better understand the groundbreaking nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And most importantly, I pray that it would help us to grow in our understanding and love of the good news of the gospel. So that's it. Let's stand here. Acts 10, verses 1 to 48. By the way, I know that this is a little bit longer portion of scripture. It is 48 verses long. I feel confident we can do it. We've been building up to this throughout the book of Acts with 20 verses at a time. We can make it 48 verses. I know it. It only takes about 3 minutes and 53 seconds. I timed it this week. So Acts 10, 1 to 48. Here we go. The Word of God says this. We're standing just to remind ourselves it's the Word of God. Beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being led down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why are you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all, 
You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Now for Dr. Alexander Fleming, his light bulb moment in the discovery of penicillin occurred when he realized that the mold in the petri dish was actively preventing the spread of bacteria. For Peter, his light bulb moment occurs in verses 34 and 35 of this passage when he realizes that God does not show partiality, but rather in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right will find acceptance. That's the main point of the passage. And indeed, seems to be the moment where the light bulb turns on for Peter. In that moment, he realizes the gospel is not just for the people of Israel. Now, to explain how he got there and the significance of that light bulb moment, we probably need to backtrack a little bit here and work our way through chapter 10 of of Acts. And so we're going to do that as quickly as we can here. The passage begins in verses 1 to 8 with an encounter between a man named Cornelius and an angel of the Lord. We're told in verse 1 that Cornelius was a centurion of the Roman army. In the Roman army, a centurion was someone who was over a hundred soldiers. Generally speaking, centurions were well-respected and well-compensated. And we have no reason to believe that Cornelius was an exception to that. In fact, to the contrary, throughout the passage, Cornelius is indeed seen to be a respectable and decent man. But more than just respectable and decent, verse 2 also tells us that he was a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave generously to those in need, and prayed with great devotion. Given that description, it seems likely that while Cornelius was probably not a full-blown convert to Judaism, he probably wasn't circumcised, he was one who was very interested in the one true God. He was religious, and the right kind of religious, but he needed further instruction to understand who this true God was and how to access that one true God. Hence, the vision of verses 3 to 6. In verses 3 to 6, an angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius and tells him to send men to Joppa to look for a man who goes by the name Peter. And in verses 7 to 8, that's what Cornelius does. He sends some of his trusted men to Joppa to look for this man named Peter. Now the complication in this story, and the most important part of this story, is that Cornelius is a Gentile. Prior to the coming of Christ, the general understanding of the Jewish people is that Gentiles were unclean and thus not to be associated with in any meaningful way. In particular, doing things like sharing a meal with a Gentile would have been seen as anathema, something you just would not do. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people were the chosen people of God. Now, there were certainly hints throughout the Old Testament, which we'll talk about here in just a minute, that God's favor would eventually extend to all nations and all peoples. But at this time, in Acts 10, Jewish people like Peter would have still been under the impression that Gentiles were in fact unclean and not to be associated with. 
And that's why the vision given to Peter in verses 9 to 14 is so crucial to this story. In verses 9 to 14, God gives Peter a vision in which a sheet falls from heaven. And in this sheet, there are animals of every kind, including some that according to Jewish law would have been unclean. In passages like Leviticus 11, there were certain restrictions that were given to the Jewish people to set them apart. Certain animals in this particular passage, Leviticus 11, that they were not to eat. These animals were labeled as unclean. And apparently some of these animals are in Peter's vision. And so for a voice from heaven to tell Peter, rise, kill and eat, is something that Peter just would not have been able to accept very easily. In fact, that's why he initially says, I I can't do that. I wouldn't eat unclean animals. But the voice continues to say, no, rise, kill and eat. And the fundamental point of the vision then seems to be this, that that God ultimately has the right to declare what is clean or unclean. If he wants to declare something as clean that was previously unclean, he has the right to do so. Now, as verse 17 would indicate, Peter was initially perplexed by this vision. I have to be honest, I kind of get it. It's a weird vision, right? But by verse 28, it's clear that he has started to grasp the larger meaning of the vision. And that larger meaning is this. If God can declare food to be clean, he can do the same with people. And in that way, the vision of verses 9 to 16 with the sheep falling is a parable of sorts. In the same way that God declares unclean food to be clean, he also, in this passage, is declaring the unclean Gentiles to now be clean. And in fact, that's really the main point of the passage. In verses 17 to 29, the men sent by Cornelius to find Peter and Joppa find him, and then they return with Peter to Caesarea. In verses 30 to 33, Cornelius recaps the vision the angel had given him, and then he asked Peter to share what the Lord has commanded him to share. And in verses 34 to 43, that's exactly what Peter does. He shares the good news of Christ, and embedded in that is Peter's light bulb moment, that God does not show partiality, but rather the good news is available to all people of all nations, including the Gentiles. That reality is confirmed in verses 44 to 48, when the Gentiles, in this case Cornelius and his companions, respond to the good news about Jesus as the Holy Spirit falls on them, and then they are subsequently baptized. In a nutshell, that's Acts 10. It's quite the passage. And it's a lot that's going on. In fact, it's the longest narrative in the book of Acts. But again, I think the key to the passage, and where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, is thinking about Peter's light bulb moment in verses 34 to 35, in which Peter realizes that the good news is available to people of all nations, including the Gentiles. Now, no doubt, that moment came about as a result of the vision that Peter had been given, and as a result of his interaction with Cornelius. But that statement in verses 34 and 35 is the indication to us that the light bulb was now on. Now, having said all that, I think it's worth for us this morning reflecting on the significance of that moment, as I think it's a huge turning point in the book of Acts, a huge turning point in the history of the church, and one that has great relevance for every single person in this room. More broadly, I think it's worth reflecting on Peter's light bulb moment in the context of this entire passage, as I think the entire passage helps us to better understand the good news of the gospel. More specifically, I think there are three things that we see in this passage that help us to better understand why the good news is good news, and actually some elements about the good news as well. The first is this, the good news of the gospel is good news for all people everywhere, including both Jews and Gentiles. Now, I think it's possible that we could get lost in all kinds of details in this passage. After all, there are 48 verses. There's a lot going on. 
But I think the main point of the passage is exceedingly clear, and it's directly connected to the light bulb moment of verse 28, but also verses 34 and 35. The Gentiles are included in the good news of the gospel. They're not unclean. They're not detestable. They're not outsiders to gospel hope. Now, in saying that, here's the challenge for us in 2022. We seldom use, let alone talk about the word Gentile. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to guess that in your workplace this week, and in your homes this week, there is probably not one discussion about the relationship between the Jewish people and Gentiles. If there was, I would be very curious to hear about your workplace, or very curious to hear about the types of discussions you're having in your house. Because the fact of the matter is that in Nebraska in the year 2022, most people don't even know what the word Gentile means. So let's start there by defining the word In the context of Acts 10, when we talk about Gentiles, we're talking about those who are not of Jewish ethnicity. Now, the Bible will sometimes use Gentile in different ways to describe those broadly who are non-believers. But here in Acts 10, when I'm talking about Gentiles, what I'm talking about is those who are not of Jewish ethnicity. And that way, every person in the world could be divided into two camps. Either you are a Jewish person or you are a Gentile. Now, I'm going to assume most of us in this room would probably fall in the category of Gentile. Now, I don't doubt that there might be some who have Jewish ethnicity, but most of us are probably Gentiles. In the case of Acts 10, that was certainly the case with Cornelius. And the fact that Cornelius, as a Gentile, would respond to the good news about Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized into the church is a hugely significant moment in the history of the church, and here's why. I've already alluded to this some, but in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were said to be God's chosen people. In fact, Deuteronomy 7, 6, the Jewish people are described in this way, and I'm quoting, You are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Given that understanding, by and large, the Jewish people viewed Gentiles as pagans, who did not know God and probably did not deserve to know God. They were viewed to be unclean and unworthy. As such, the idea of a Jewish person associating with the Gentile, or in particular doing something like sharing a meal with them, would have been looked down on in almost every way. Now, I've already mentioned this, but in the Old Testament, there are definitely hints throughout the Old Testament that God's favor would eventually extend not just to the Jewish people, but to people of all nations. In fact, as early as Genesis 12, God promises that all nations will be blessed through Abraham. Isaiah 42, the passage that Jim read earlier, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be a light to the nations, or as some translations put it, a light to the Gentiles. But having said that, for a Jewish person like Peter, living in the first century, the idea that an uncircumcised Gentile could be a fully accepted member of God's community would have been a radical idea. And that's why this passage is so significant. Jesus may have told his disciples in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. And in Acts 1.8, he may have said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But you get the sense that up until now in Acts 10, the disciples don't really understand what Jesus was asking them to do. They didn't understand the full implications of Matthew 28 or Acts 1. Now, in theory, prior to Acts 10, I think the disciples might have been open to the idea that Gentiles could find salvation in Christ. But the idea that the Gentiles could be fully accepted members of the community and part of the family of God in the same way the Jewish believers in Christ were, that seems to be something that the disciples did not grasp. 
But what happens here in Acts 10 begins to change that. After being given his vision with the unclean animals in the sheet, and after healing from, hearing from Cornelius and his men, Peter realizes that God does not show partiality, but instead anyone, Jew or Gentile, who comes to Christ in saving faith can be a part of the family of God. And when the Holy Spirit then proceeds to fall on Cornelius and on the rest of his household who heard the word of the Lord, this only serves to confirm Peter's light bulb moment that the gospel is not just for Jewish people, it is for Gentiles too. And more than that, Gentile believers are not second-class citizens of the community of God. They are full members of the community of God and part of God's family. They're now God's chosen people too if they trust in Christ. And in that, we see a huge shift happening right here before our eyes in Acts 10. On this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's all of those, Jew or Gentile, who trust in Christ who are now the people of God. Or as Paul says it in Galatians 3, in Christ, there's no longer Jew or Greek. If you are in Christ, he goes on to say, you are Abraham's offspring and an heir to all of the promises made to the people of God. Or to say it more simply, if you are in Christ, regardless of, of ethnicity, you are now his treasured possession. You are his chosen people. You are a son of Abraham. Now, you might ask the question this morning, why does this matter? After all, some of you have probably had a really hard week. You've been dealing with all kinds of stress at work, or your kids have been acting crazy, or your in-laws have been driving you up the wall, or there's a doctor appointment that is hanging over your head that has you anxious. And so you might be thinking to yourself, why should I care that Peter has this light bulb moment in Acts 10? What difference does it make that Peter realized that God shows no partiality and that all who come to him, Jew or Gentile, can find acceptance as the people of God? I mean, after all, if your life is falling apart, do theological questions about Jews and Gentiles really matter? Well, my response to those questions would be, yes, it does matter, and here's why. If you are a Gentile, which again is probably true of most of us in this room, or for that matter, if you are a Jewish person, the good news of the gospel is freely offered to you. And that good news absolutely matters in the midst of the troubles and difficulties of this life. If Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and if Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death, and if Jesus ascended to the right hand of God and he is clothed in power, and he will come again to make things right, and if in turning to Jesus Christ we can be rescued from our sin and experience the peace of God and have the hope of eternal life in which we will reign with him forever, if those things are true, then that completely changes the way we view our stress at work, does it not? And it completely changes the way we view our struggles within our family. And it completely changes the way we view that uncertainty about that upcoming doctor's appointment. The good news of the gospel changes all of that. And what I'm telling you is that in light of this passage, that good news is available to you. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are an American or an Australian, whether you are black or white, male or female, the good news of the gospel is good news for all people everywhere. Now to be sure, to be sure, that universal scope of the gospel, and by that I mean that the gospel is freely offered to everyone. When I say universal, I'm not implying that everyone will be saved. Only those who trust in Christ will be saved. But what I am saying is that the gospel is freely offered to everyone. 
that universal scope of the gospel has implications for our evangelism and it has implications for the way we view Christians across the globe. For example, if you don't care about lost people living in the middle of Asia who've never heard about Jesus, or if you hear about Christians being persecuted in Nigeria and you think, who cares? Something is seriously wrong with your understanding of the gospel. The good news is not just good news for people in this room. It's not just good news for people living in certain places. It's not just good news for Americans. It's good news for all peoples everywhere. But aside from the evangelistic and global Christian implications, Peter's light bulb moment also has tremendous implications for us personally. More specifically, if we are Gentiles, the gospel is good news for us. That is not something that Cornelius would have taken for granted. And it's not something we should take for granted earlier, or granted either. So the good news of the gospel is good news for all people everywhere, including both Jews and Gentiles. That's the first and most obvious thing we learn about the good news in this passage. But it's not the only thing. Secondly, I think we learn this. The substance of the good news is the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want you to look back with me for a second here, verses 30 to 33. Verse 30 And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord." So in verses 30 to 33, Cornelius recaps his angelic visit, and then he closes by telling Peter, hey, we're all here. We've all gathered around because we want to hear what you have to say, so go ahead and speak. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, for a preacher, this is a dream scenario. As one who preaches for a living, I can tell you there have been many times where I've been preaching, and it's clear not everyone's intent on listening. I'm not looking at anyone specifically this morning, for the record. But when I was a pastor in New York, we rented a space from another church in town. This particular church building that we rented had pews instead of chairs like we have here. Excuse me. There was one specific gentleman in the congregation who would regularly put his head down on the pew in front of him, like this, and then he would zonk out during my sermons. I had to do everything I could to not look his way, lest I become extraordinarily discouraged that I'm actively putting people to sleep with my preaching. So listen... I sell it to say this. I know what it's like to have people who are disinterested and unengaged when you're preaching, but that's not what's going on in Acts 10. That's why I say this is a dream scenario, right? Cornelius gathers all of his friends and family, and they tell Peter, tell us what we need to hear. We're all ears. We're all in. Come on, Peter. And Peter, what he shares, I think, is actually the more interesting part. As much as I like to to make light of the fact that this is a dream scenario for a preacher, the most interesting thing is what he says, now look at the content of his speech in verses 34 to 43. Cornelius has just teed up Peter, right? He just said, all right, Peter, let it rip. Let's hear it. And then look at what he says in verses 34 and 43. This is extraordinarily important. This is the content of his speech. Here. Verse, and and we, we have to imagine he probably said more, but this is the summary. Verses 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. 
you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now listen, there are a lot of things that Peter could have said in verses 34 to 43. Remember, Cornelius and his audience, they are a captive audience. And he could have said a lot of things. He could have talked about the importance of living a life devoted to God. Or he could have talked about the wisdom of God's commands. Or he could have talked about the importance of being a good person. But he doesn't talk about any of those things. Instead, he focuses primarily on one thing. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Now in verses 34 and 35, he does talk about this light bulb moment that God does not show partiality, but rather he accepts people from all nations who fear him and do what's right. But then in the rest of the speech, I think he clarifies what it means to actually fear him and do what's right. And what it ultimately means is to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the substance of his message. In verses 36 to 43, Peter talks about how the good news of peace comes through Jesus. He talks about Jesus being anointed by the Holy Spirit, casting out demons, healing the sick. He talks about Jesus dying on the cross, taking our curse. He talks about Jesus being raised from the dead. He talks about Jesus as judge of the living and the dead. And he talks about how forgiveness is only found in Jesus. So when presented with the opportunity to elaborate on the good news while he has this captive audience, Peter points in one direction to the person and work of Christ. Now that's instructive for us, especially given who he's talking to. Keep in mind how Cornelius was described in verse 2 of this chapter. In verse 2, we were told that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God, gave generously to those in need, and prayed continually to God. To many in our culture, that description of Cornelius would make him a prime candidate as the, as the best example of what religion should look like. Be a good person. Give away your money. Pray continually. Many people in a place like Fremont would hear that and assume, well, Cornelius must get a free pass to heaven. He's the perfect example of what we should do. But that's not the way Peter sees it. And more importantly, that's not the way God sees it either. When given the chance to share the word of the Lord, Peter does not tell Cornelius, keep up the good work, Cornelius. Keep being religious. Keep helping others. Keep praying. No, he doesn't do that at all. Instead, he points him to Christ because he recognizes that Cornelius will not be saved by his religion or by being a good person. Cornelius can only be saved by one thing, and that is the person and work of Christ. And that's because Jesus is the substance of the good news. The good news is not be a good person. The good news is not do religious stuff. The good news is not help others. The good news is not go to church. The good news is a person. The good news is Christ. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. Whoever believes in him can have forgiveness of sins. The substance of the good news is not be more religious. The substance is a person. It is Christ. And the implications of that for us are enormous. 
as a church, our goal is not to promote morality or religious deeds. Our goal is to point to Christ. As parents, our goal is not to produce good kids who do right things. Our goal is to point our kids to the hope of Jesus. As those who will one day give an account to the judge, our goal is not to live in such a way so as to earn God's favor. That's impossible. Our goal, rather, is to rest in the person and work of Christ who's already earned the favor of God for us. Now, that's not to say there's no value in living a moral life or teaching our kids to do the right thing. In this passage, Cornelius' morality is clearly presented in a positive light. So we're not dismissing religion or moral activity, but what we are saying is that the substance of the good news is Jesus. He's the one who rescues us from our sin. He's the one who gives us peace with God. He's the Savior. We are not saved by our religious activity or by our good works. We are saved by Christ. And to the extent that any church forgets that, and stops preaching Christ, they become like a restaurant that does not serve food or a gas station that has no gas. And sadly, there are many churches who are gasless gas stations. And many parents who, in their trying to raise their kids, are failing to give their kids the food that they desperately need, which is the good news of Christ. Jesus is the substance of the good news, and we cannot and must not lose sight of that. That's the second thing we learn about the good news in this passage. The third, I think, we learn is this. That salvation is ultimately a work of God. This actually ties back to the theme we saw in Acts 9. You may remember in Acts 9, we talked about the conversion of Saul. And in that passage, we pointed out how Saul was not pursuing Jesus, but rather Jesus was pursuing him. And as we said when we looked at that passage, Saul's conversion was a result of God's gracious initiative. Now, to be sure, Cornelius starts in a much different place than Saul. Unlike Saul, his heart seems to be soft towards the gospel. And unlike Saul, he's not persecuting Christians. Unlike Saul, he's not breathing out murderous threats. But make no mistake about it. Cornelius' salvation was just as much a result of God's gracious initiative as Saul's was. In fact, God's initiating fingerprints are everywhere in this passage. In fact, let's just walk through a few here. Verses 3 to 5. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he, being Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision an angel of the Lord of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Verses 10 through 13, this being Peter now. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, we read this. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Verses 44 and 45. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So let's just recap real quickly here what I just read. An angel comes and communicates directly to Cornelius. Peter receives a vision from heaven and a voice from heaven tells him what to do. The Holy Spirit gives him direct guidance saying, do this. And as Peter preaches, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius Everywhere you go in this passage, it is God directing the events. The salvation that comes to Cornelius and his household is undoubtedly a work of God. To suggest otherwise is to just not read the passage. 
God is the one doing the work in this passage. Cornelius may have been a good man, but it still took the initiative of God to rescue him from his sin. Now, to be sure, just as we said with Saul, Cornelius had to respond to that initiative. He's not a robot in this passage, and he does rightly follow God's prompting. But without question, the salvation that takes place here is God's work. And as we said when we talked about Saul, the same is true for us. To be born again and experience the new life of Christ is ultimately a result of the Spirit's work, not our own. And again, I think this has implications for us. First of all, I think we should be grateful and humbled by our salvation. I have never met a person who brags about their own birth as if they accomplished something. No one ever says, you know, I was in the womb and I was saying, you know, it's probably been about nine months. I should probably get like oriented here a little bit, but I'm going to move a little bit and I'm going to stretch out my back and, and then I'm going to come out. No one says that. No one brags about that because implicitly we all know we had nothing to do with our birth. Being born is not something you do. It's something that happens to you. The same is true of being born again. And in fact, I think that's partially why Jesus uses that language in John 3. He's trying to help us see that being born again is not something we do. It is a work of the Spirit. So let's not be prideful here as if we were doing exercises in the womb getting ready for birth or pulling the spiritual equivalent of that. If we were rescued, it's because of God's grace. Let's delight in that. And let's not be prideful or act as if somehow it's up to us. Secondly, though, I would say this. In light of salvation being a work of God, let's confidently share the good news of Christ knowing the Spirit can rescue anyone. Now, on the one hand, it's kind of humbling to recognize we will never rescue anyone just because we give a perfect gospel presentation. I think sometimes we think that sharing the gospel is kind of like an Olympic sport, that if we share it perfectly and the judges give us a 10, then they will respond, perfect, oh, I didn't know, yes, I'll respond. That's not the way it works, though, is it? You can give a perfect presentation, and the person that you're sharing with will have glazed over eyes. Because ultimately, it's a work of the Spirit. That's humbling, but it's also freeing. It's freeing, too. For example, no matter how hard I may try to help my kids trust in Christ, I recognize I can't do it. It's a work of the Spirit. And so I don't have to have the exact right words. What I do have to do, though, is point them to Christ and then pray that the Spirit will do a work. In fact, this is true with all lost people who are in our lives. All we have to do is point them to Christ and then wait for God to do the work. To roughly paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, the gospel is like a lion. You don't defend a lion, you just let it go. And so it is with the gospel. Our job is simply to let it go and see what the Spirit does. And what I'm going to argue is that's what we should do. Because the gospel is the good news for all people everywhere, Jew or Gentile. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That is good news and that is good news that we should share far and wide. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We know it's long. Uh, there's so much going on here. And I know I've only scratched on the surface. But I pray, God, that we would just be reminded of the great truths that we see here in this passage. That the good news is good news for people everywhere. That the substance of the good news is Jesus and the salvation is a work of yours. So help us to be humble in light of that, but help us to be people who want to confidently share this good news far and wide, knowing that you are the one who brings salvation and that you have a desire for people from all nations to hear this good news. 
Help us to live accordingly. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so on the weeks opposite the Lord's Supper, one of the things that we like to do at this church is dispense.